China is doing exactly what you said. It is trying to basically have backups for choke point technologies so that in the case of sanctions, it is not left not being able to do anything. Whether or not it needs to have a complete supply chain, well, it actually has a lot of the more lower value add components. It, it, it is just in the really more advanced pieces, as you pointed out, that it does not have a solution and it's actually pretty far behind. I think anywhere from 10, some people even think it's 20 years behind because there are so many pieces that go into these more sophisticated machines or processes. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung. With the major changes happening in China over the past three years, can we still invest into tech startups in China? With me, Rayma, creator of Tech Bus China, and also congratulations on your newborn. Thank you for doing this during the maternity leave, who will also be helping me to address this question and dive deep into the Chinese tech ecosystem. Rayma, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again. Since our last conversation with you on the Botch and IPO, and I think that was done with Carol when I was away, what have you been up to? Yeah, I like you said, I just had a kid. That's probably the biggest thing that I've been up to. So I have a daughter. She's a month and a half right now. And that is a huge change in my life. One interesting question that I wanted to ask you is that there's some changes with regards to Tech Bus China. How has Tech Bus China evolved over the past few years since its inception? Yeah, so... I, I'm not sure what was going on when we did the last episode with Carol, but since then, Tech Bus China started off as a podcast, and now we have an investor community. It's on a, the software called, a forum software called Circle, and then we have a Discord channel along with that as well. I've also released a dozen or so episodes that we call a live cast because those are interview format podcast, much like this show, where I talk to experts instead of me just telling you my learnings about a subject. So we have a live cast. And then I think maybe the most important thing is since the end of last year, I launched a syndicate for accredited investors. So angel investors who are interested in investing alongside me when I find good deals usually at the seed or series A stage, you're welcome to join me and, and invest. Most of the companies are China related in some way. They're either inspired by Chinese tech. So maybe it's a foreign non-Chinese entrepreneur trying to replicate something they learned or were inspired by in China tech, or sometimes it's Chinese entrepreneurs internationalizing a product. And you've also been doing some speaking with regards to for corporates, governments, and universities, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to say that, yeah, I do a lot of speaking as well. So obviously, when it's to groups in, in corporates, I do charge. But with students, I always prioritize my work with students. So if you're a student organization interested in having me speak to your group, I always do that for free. And I generally prioritize you because I want to give back. I learned a lot from people who spent their time with me when I was in college. So I want to re replicate that. And it's great time to have you on this show. This is actually episode 388, which is a very nice number in the Chinese custom. So today, I actually get you here because I think one of the biggest questions that many people have, and this is something I'm also thinking a lot on, is the question of, can we still invest into Chinese tech startups within China itself? To start, I think the Chinese technology ecosystem has actually undergone major changes over the past three years. I think the first is the regulators have taken a stronger hand towards the China tech giants such as Alibaba, Didi, and many others. And then of course, second, the education tech industry was decimated, right? And third, I think the COVID zero policy has also, they instituted a lot of the lockdowns will actually affect their GDP growth this year. But what I think is the most significant is the amount of venture financing had in has decreased down from US 18.1 billion that's in Q1 2022 down to 8.1 billion 
in Q2 2022. And that is actually half of what last year and now based on what I got from Nikkei Asia Review. I think the first question which I want to set up for the rest of the conversation is what is the sentiment on the ground like for Chinese tech startups? What I would say is right this moment at the end of August 2022, the sentiment is not great. It's pretty low right now, but it's not for the reasons that I think many people suspect. So first of all, the regulations really kicked in at the beginning, starting the beginning of 2021 or end of 2020, however you want to segment the circumstances. But Really, that did not have much impact on the venture ecosystem. In fact, 2021 was overall a pretty good year. And we can go into the reasons why that's the case. But just on a very high level, the regulations primarily targeted large companies and were around anti-competitive behaviors, or else they were pretty narrowly focused on specific industries like gaming, like education, and some fintech, etc. So they didn't affect... a large amount of existing venture investments. So that really had, if you just look at the stats, a low impact. What did have a much greater impact, and which is one factor you actually didn't mention, is just the overall markets, capital markets globally. And of course, because the US is the dominant capital market, especially for tech, then that was also a big factor. So starting even in, I would say, February of this year, I was already hearing from some companies that I was working with that the drop in the stock market specifically, you know, in the multiples that companies were trading at. It was definitely affecting the later stage fundraisings, but it was even affecting the early stage fundraisings. And that was because the the public markets give you a signal as to what the, your company might ultimately be worth. So if if your potential valuation down the road is slashed in half, then that's going to ripple back and affect what you get and valued at in your seed stage as well. So for some reason, obviously that's since happened in the U.S. as well, but for some reason, I think the U.S. was actually much slower to pick up on that than in China, because in China, I was already starting to hear that from entrepreneurs and investors pretty soon after the drop. And the drop, if you remember, really came into being around November of 2021. And then since then, it's definitely been exacerbated by the zero COVID policy, as well as just overall economic slowdown that's been happening, yes, since COVID started, but has really been kicking in because of various other macroeconomic factors in China, such as real estate reform, such as just the GDP growth declining, which it has been doing for the past several years. So all those factors are also contributing to, you know, not like a great sentiment in in trying to attack right now. I do have to mention that when I say overall, it's not looking great. That does not mean it's bad throughout the entire spectrum, because there are obviously still pockets that are doing quite well. And I, I know we'll get to them later, but basically you can think of anything that is deep tech, manufacturing, healthcare, some enterprise software, throw that in there as well. All all these things are actually thriving. And in fact, they're thriving so well that sometimes when I talk to entrepreneurs, for example, in the semiconductor space, which has really exploded in the past two years, entrepreneurs are actually afraid that it's too hot and that it's too bubbly. So you basically have different outlooks on the sector and different circumstances, depending on which subsector you're working on. If you were to think about, say, venture investing, for example, when you look at the space itself, let's say compare, say, early stage, late stage, is because what was happening is that people like us living in the rest of the world, we look at both US and China news. I have to balance my reading diets every day. I have to look at Chai Xing on one side and then reading Bloomberg on the other side. And the, the information is always being interpreted in different ways. But maybe help me understand, maybe even across a like early stage uh, venture capital, is there actually growth in terms of venture financing? Because you mentioned deep tech being 
very crucial. People are now going into semiconductors and all that. How does that go? Yeah. So, so I have to caveat what I'm saying with the fact that depending on which data source you use, they can look very different. In general, I use Chinese data sources for China data and U.S. data sources for U.S. data. So for China data, I use Zero to IPO or IT Jutsu. And this one is from Zero to IPO. I got this in April. They issued a report on Q1 fundraisings in, in China. So n- note that this is funds raised and not funds deployed. But, you know, there's a pretty high correlation. Whatever you raise, eventually you're going to deploy. So, and fundraising could actually be sort of a leading indicator in terms of like how bullish people are feeling about the economy and the sector at that point. So what was surprising to me is that if you define early stage as C to series B, which is a pretty conventional definition, according to Zero to IPO, they said that for tech, RMB funds actually raised over 770 billion RMB, which is actually almost 12% increase year on year. But foreign currency, primarily USD funds, raised less than that. So only about 300 billion of RMB equivalent. And that was a decline of 63% year on year. So yes, while the overall fundraising has declined, as you can see, the RMB has actually increased, of course, rather modestly, not by a really large amount, but now it exceeds USD fundraisings for tech in China. So what we're seeing is that, again, depending on what specifically you're looking at, the outlook could be very different. And what we're seeing is that USD fundraising is decreasing by a lot since last year. Now, there could be very many reasons for that. It could be because COVID policy prevent people from doing due diligence. Of course, the regulations have a big part in it. The audit rules are scaring people about whether or not they can ultimately exit on U.S. markets, all these things. But let's not ignore the fact that RMB is just becoming much more popular in China because they have a lot more access to capital markets. So there are more homegrown stock exchanges. And it's a very easy currency to use for some of the deep tech deep tech innovations in China because of this reason, because it's going to be, or because it's encouraged in China these sectors and because there is really like a green light all the way for them to go IPO. So I rambled mm. a little bit there. I actually mm. forgot what your question was. So hopefully <laughs> no, 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 I answered no, no. it. I, I think it's a very good point because you're you, you trying to break down the nuances. It also tells me that there is a lot more capital within China to seed the early stage funding. But it's, it's also a cycle, right? Because the initial stage of China's rise is definitely funded by foreign capital, like from the US and everywhere else. Uh, I know Singapore is a bigger contributor to the startups in the very early stage, being investors to all the now tech giants. And I think this is now changing as well, given this past three years with all these uh, changes that have happened within China itself. I think uh, one interesting question, I, I and I'm not interested in the geopolitics, nor the I'm much more interested in how has the Chinese government regulation specifically to tech have changed over the years? Yeah, I think you mentioned that already sort of mm. in your beginning introduction, which is that overall the Chinese regulation regime was pretty lax for internet and software in general until very recently. So most people point to 2020. I think you can see glimmers of intended regulation earlier than that, but really probably kicked in around 2020. And a lot of it is just the government playing catch up to the developed world, to the West, and making sure that the regulations reflect global standards. What a lot of people don't realize is that before this round of regulations, of which some experts call rectification, which is a word I also personally like to use, a lot of like really basic anti-competitive 
barriers, for example, were not put in place. So doing business in China was actually very different from doing business elsewhere in the developed world, meaning that it was, yeah, much more lax. So now China has really caught up to the developed world, of course, with some idiosyncrasies. I don't want to throw in there the regulatory changes, the industry-specific things like you mentioned, ed tech, gaming, et cetera. Those are specific to China, but I'm saying overall, some of the largest changes that affect the, the very large companies, platform companies like Alibaba, Tencent, et cetera, that everyone is talking about, those changes really are yeah, quite reasonable if you look at how they compare to the rest of the world. Hmm. And also depending on what you read from the different sources, again, I, I think, for example, I think China, the China government regulation is pretty advanced in terms of thinking about AI. Like how the, uh, and I think a lot of it follows from where the EU is going with GDPR as such. One question I do have is how about the VC ecosystem itself and how are they adapting to the change in mood within the tech ecosystem? Well, I assume that GGV Capital, which is pretty well known, has a pretty big major right now given their investment in the education tech companies or edutech companies have all tanked as a result of this. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no comment on GGV's specific portfolio. I'm sure they're doing quite all right with a lot of other winners they have in there. But the VCs, it, it, it really depends. Like you're saying, right, if you were concentrated in these sectors that got hit hard, then you're going to have some big losses. But if you were already focused on some of the other sectors that I talked about earlier that are very hot these days, most deep tech as well as enterprise software. I wouldn't put enterprise software in deep tech, obviously. Then you probably would have been fine because these, again, are very encouraged industries. And if you look at the data from the last five years, so I'm going to cite IT Jutsu. Actually, what you see is that the top five sectors, again, I'm only focusing on early stage, which is seed through series B, it was composed of, last year it was healthcare, which was 26% of the total, advanced manufacturing, 17%, enterprise software, 12%, motor vehicles, which includes things like electric cars, 11%, local services, 8%. So just these top five together accounted already for 75% of the funds deployed into early stage tech VC in China. And if you only include healthcare and advanced manufacturing, that's more than 40% already. So if you were in these sectors, again, of, of course, specific investments might have not worked out, but if you were in these two sectors overall, you would have done just fine. So the VC, the VC like outlook again, hope I, I hope I'm not sounding like a cop out or anything, but it, I think it really does depend on what you are focused on. I do want to say that there are many VCs who did not make this shift or they did not make it in a big way, right? Because again, you might not have been investing in consumer internet, but in 2021 and 2020, actually, there was a big shift towards investing in offline consumer brands. That was also a big VC focus last year. And if you were in those sectors, then that has seen really big write-downs partly because it was too bubbly and partly because of zero COVID. So you would not have done very well. And if you were VCs in those sectors, the joke these days is that most VCs are more like financial advisors these days because they're not like able to invest much and they're just doing portfolio management, helping their existing portfolio companies not die. And so primarily focus on fundraising for their existing companies. So yeah, it depends. I would say overall, people are not euphoric or anything like that. Some people are experiencing some dire circumstances and some others are doing okay. Some people might question, well, why didn't all these funds pivot into deep tech or you know healthcare or whatever? And what I have to say in response is that actually, a lot of people didn't know that those were hot sectors, but they just didn't have the talent or their, their fund wasn't structured to be able to handle the opportunities. So we can see that, for example, uh, biochemistry related 
startups are really hot in China right now and starting salaries for associates. So people with no experience in the sector start starting at 1 million RMB, about 150,000 USD. I know some people don't think that's a really large amount, but it's pretty big. (laughs) So yeah. And the reason why the pay is so high is because it's really hard to find these people. And then remember, once you find these people, you have to train them and you have to, you have to figure out like, you have to train them. You have to start making the investment. So there's like a learning curve. So if you did not have this in place before the macro economy turned down, then you may be doing what I said earlier, which is acting as a financial advisor for, for your portfolio <laughs> companies instead. Yeah. So it's not that necessarily people can't see the opportunity is that it takes a lot of work. And it's still risky. So even though we can sit here and say like, oh, you look at these numbers, these sectors are doing really well. Well, you may not have known that with great certainty a year or two years ago. So a friend of ours, Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief from at the Information, uh, made this prediction in my annual review of China with him last year, saying that Sequoia China will eventually split up and become an independent entity moving forward. What are your thoughts, given that they have just raised a whopping $9 billion this year for just on China itself? And where do you think they will be going? I remember reading that article and I, I kind of had the same. Well, I don't know if I had reached the same conclusion exactly, but I have sort of the same question in my mind, which is Sequoia China is very strong. Neil Shen consistently tops the Midas list in terms of the VC that's generating the most returns. It's really dominating in China even now, even with all the sector changes that we're talking about earlier, Sequoia China is actually very well positioned to take advantage of these opportunities. Yeah, why why don't they just consider spinning off and becoming independent and just not deal with all this geopolitical mess? And my conclusion after talking to other more experienced VCs is that it depends, right? So there are pros, like we were saying earlier, it's it's a pretty clean split if you if you want to think about it that way and just set up separate shop. But in today's world, actually, to build truly outsized returns, you actually need to build global companies. So you need access to global markets and global expertise. So there is a lot of advantages to being part of a global VC firm. Not many people can offer that. And Sequoia can offer it at a level that no one else can. So I would think, or I guess I've been convinced that unless it's absolutely necessary, maybe Sequoia China doesn't think about splitting off because there are just still a lot of advantages to being what they are. Even if you look at a Silicon Valley darling like Andreessen Horowitz, well, they barely have presence outside of the U.S. But look at Sequoia. They've been investing in China for decades, India for more than a decade as well, I think, and Southeast Asia probably almost a decade, something like that. And they're respectively probably, at least in China, they're definitely the number one player. So what's their reason for giving up that global advantage? This is how you create truly big businesses these days. You cannot create a truly big business in the future, in my opinion, without having access to Asia, without having access to China, having some kind of plan. Of course, some businesses maybe sensitive certain internet businesses but let's let's just talk about other businesses in general i think regardless of what sector to be number 1 you're you're looking at having to be a global player that's a fair comment i i think that's this is not going to happen this year but we don't know in the next few years because things are constantly changing in china i think specifically when we think about china everybody just think about the consumer internet because that's where the boom seems to appear most. Specifically for the internet itself, are we also seeing less emphasis on China, Chinese consumer tech and move towards more enterprise tech? For example, SaaS businesses, other types of things where software is also touching into maybe more traditional industries. I mean, the thing is about it is that China is there to do any internet business in China, you have to know Chinese, right? So, so, so sometimes people don't capture the nuances of other 
software tech that goes into very, very different industries that they don't see, whether it's in the US, Europe, or even other parts of the world. Yeah, so enterprise software specifically has been a topic of discussion for about a decade, I guess. <laughs> I think a decade ago, people in China, VCs were asking, well, when's our opportunity to invest in the next SaaS unicorn? Well, China does have some SaaS unicorns now, but generally financial performance wise, I think they really don't hold up to their Western counterparts. And that's also why overall, even though there are a lot more SaaS focused investors, I'm a little concerned how they compare to their Western counterparts, I guess. And the main reason is just because right now in China, the Chinese SaaS players are all catering to the domestic market. And there's just not enough willingness to pay in China. And the main reason is cost, right? So two parts of that, cost of developers. So even though Chinese salaries have gone up a lot, the cost of developers is still much lower in China than in the US. And then there's also just the cost of labor in general. So what we see is that companies that know what they're doing, right, and want to want to adopt a technical solution, for example, some of the internet companies, instead of adopting a standardized solution, they'll just hire developers because developers are still relatively cheap and they'll just develop a customized solution for themselves in-house. It's much better for their operations, right? Because no matter how great the industry-leading standardized solution is, it's still not customized to what your specific needs are. So you see this, and for example, I think I read that Meituan spent thousands of, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars on creating their own HR software instead of buying one, just because, not because this is crucial necessarily to their operations, just because why not? I know how to build this. I have talent and I, I just want the most customized solution. Another one is labor, right? So if you are not a technical company, but you are pitched some technology in China right now, just overall labor is cheap enough that you might just be better off having a non-technical solution. So there was this great example I saw of a, a factory owner being pitched visual recognition software, AI enabled, that basically tells you if someone on the assembly line is making a mistake in terms of safety, right? Maybe they don't have their goggles on or their hard hat on or whatever it is. And the software will alert you and you can just keep it running and automatically flag employees. And the factory owner was like, okay, that seems interesting, but why would I use that when the solution I can adopt today uh, and which would be very foolproof is I just tell the foreman on the factory floor that, hey, if I catch anyone on your team not following the safety procedures, of the protocol, I will just find you personally and you'll just be personally liable. <laughs> mm -hmm. So again, you don't really need a high tech solution to get some very efficient results, right? So because the foreman has is doesn't cost that much right now. So threatening them with a small fine or making them work a few extra minutes or whatever to follow these rules really is not a problem. Whereas in the US, you may not get your employees to comply because or they may not want to spend extra time or ultimately it might cost you too much to have them spend that extra time. Mm. It, it feels to me that cheap labor is still prevalent in China. Okay, so this, so that's this the first observation I made, which is very similar to Southeast Asia and India as well. And, and I'll just give another interesting data point. Like in the US, if you talk to any startups today, they're probably using up to 100 to 250 SaaS apps. Okay, and they're trying to manage that apps overload. Whereas if you go to Southeast Asia, the actual typical startup only use up to only seven to 10 SaaS apps. And they don't use a lot of SaaS apps. And, and there is this constant VC hunger to try to find SaaS applications within Southeast Asia for a company that doesn't want to pay for it. I find, I find this interesting because this is, seems to be an Asia Pacific phenomenon. We don't like to pay subscription fees, 
we rather pay everything as a dollar, like a utility bill. Maybe that's why Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud and Azure works so much better. I, I think there's something inherent within this cheap labor versus why people don't pick enterprise software. So that's observation number one. Observation number two, as a user now to both Chinese and US enterprise tech, I'm finding the same problem used that in a few years ago, people say, oh, the US tech doesn't want to customize to Southeast Asia. Now I'm having this, I'm now feeling the same thing like Chinese tech doesn't want to customize to Southeast Asia. Why? Because they don't want to support the latest version of Office 365. They assume that we, we are so backward that we can do Office 2016 and Office 2019. And then we tell them, no, we are being forced to move by the US companies. And, 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 and now you're seeing the same problem happening for the Chinese as in what happened to USA. And I think that will catch up eventually. And also with the exception of, of, of course, your Alibaba, Tencent and ByteDance, which are extremely advanced in the Southeast Asian market. So I, I, I don't know, it's, it's almost like I'm looking at the same thing happening in the US, happening in US expansion into Southeast Asia, same problems. China expanding in Southeast Asia, same problems. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, that's, but what, what you're saying is, Absolutely, I think correct in that. Yeah, SaaS usage is just very low in China, right? I mean, for me, just running my podcasting community, I think I pay for fifteen subscriptions to prosumer software. <laughs> so, and that's and that's just like a very honestly like very small operation. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that your typical larger business is in the hundreds, but it's not the case in in east asia and a lot of that in china is is partly because i don't know how it is in southeast asia it, it is partly because a cloud adoption is still low of course it's gone up a lot in the past decade and i think it really started penetration started becoming serious in the last 5 years but it's still much lower than the us and without cloud it's hard to standardize things and without that standardization, then SaaS doesn't really make sense, right? Mm. I think this whole in interesting piece on the enterprise SaaS piece is, is, is going to be continuously evolving. Maybe China will have a new way of thinking about enterprise tech, but that remains to be seen. I want to go back to a little bit to the Chinese tech ecosystem with regards to venture capital. Will the Chinese tech ecosystem be only funded by local VCs such as teaming ventures moving forward in the next few years. Maybe maybe with the exceptions of one, two, like a Sokoa China, uh, GGV China, these are the more global funds sitting within China itself. Well, okay. I have an opinion on that. I don't know how true my prediction will turn out to be, but I would not necessarily focus on separating uh, Chinese funds from foreign funds and be more focused on just who is actually doing the investing. And I think it's already pretty obvious, even today, that the people doing the investing really making the decisions. Of course, you have some people, returnees like Neil Shen, um, but even Neil Shen, I would consider him sort of a local Chinese. So what we're seeing in China is that the top VCs are, are more and more local Chinese uh, investors. Now, some of them or I would say many of them have decided to spin out from maybe a foreign fund that they worked at before and start their own fund. So in that case, you would maybe consider them like a local Chinese fund, but some, but they may still be raising money from foreign LPs and raising USD funds. So what I would say is that I don't know exactly where the foreign funds are going, but it's clear to me that for the foreign funds, they really need to hire and empower local Chinese talent. So maybe some returnees, but they have to be returnees that have been in China for a long time. Probably not any actual foreigners. So heavy, heavy bias towards people who are born, raised, educated, worked in China. And... If the foreign funds are unable to do that, then yes, I think they will probably end up getting squeezed out of the market or at least not be able to grow. If they are able to do that, and I would place Sequoia, by the way, as a organization that has done that very well, then I think they'll be just fine. And Qiming, by the way, is founded by a foreigner. 
So I don't know if I would consider them a local fund per se. Maybe you're considering the local fund precisely because they have been so good at absorbing local talent. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's actually a good way of thinking about it. Rather than thinking about whether a fund is foreign and local by their names or et cetera. I mean, the layman is essentially who comprises the venture capital team within that fund itself. I think the interpretation is, is, is much more spot on on this. I want to get into semiconductors. I see you tweet a lot of interesting bubbly things that happen in semiconductors sometimes. So I followed it quite closely. One key focus I think I'm looking at, well, I, I think in the chip manufacturing side, of course, Taiwan Sem, TSMC is much stronger with their uh, three to five nanometer chips. One company is actually on my radar is uh, Yangtze Memories Technologies, YMTC. I think they're moving upstream with their memory chips and they are now actually 5% in the global market. And I have already seen that Apple is actually adopting their memory chips as well. I think semiconductors, also to the layman, everyone is like fixated about their three nanometer, five nanometer. Those are like the high-end side on there. There are also other aspects of semiconductors. I think the question I've really been trying to have a feel of it is that will China eventually have their own semiconductor ecosystem? Wait, when you say that, do you mean like a sort of ecosystem that's closed off from the rest of the world? I, I wouldn't say it's closed off. It will still comprise certain components of the mm-hmm. rest of the world. Like, for example, there's no way you could do architecture chip design without ARM. And they are now based in UK. They're probably going to spin off as an independent entity going IPO in the US exchange. You, there is no way you could do lithography without an ASML machine. And that is in Netherlands, in EU. Of course, there are export controls imposing on ASML to, you know, even give any lithography machine to China because what might end up happening is that they reverse engineer and build it by itself. Okay, these these are just Western media giving you all the doomsday scenarios going around. And then there is also materials. Like if I want to be really fair, in terms of memory chips, Samsung is the best in the world with solid state hard drives. And, and phone chips. And that's why Apple has this love-hate relationship because part of their supply chain is through Samsung. And then another part of the supply chain from for Samsung is competing against them. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think this whole semiconductor has a very, if you really break the supply chain up, it's not so straightforward as just between US and China. But because China is being strangled with so much of these, these different pieces that is separated across the world, and they are also being unfairly, to a certain extent, being shut off from using those. Why should they not end up doing this themselves? They, after all, a billion population or even more. Maybe we don't we count as a certain, and there's a lot of talent. So why not, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's already happening. I would say China is not necessarily trying to create its own, it's definitely not trying to create its own independent ecosystem because. Again, if you're China, you want your companies to be able to go global. You want to be part of China's very much for globalization because it's a key beneficiary, right, of globalization. And it, it, it does not want, you know, for semiconductors, even if that's possible. And as you rightly pointed out, it seems pretty impossible for it to for the for the entire supply chain to be just located in one country or for a complete supply chain to be located in one country what i would say is like china's doing exactly what you said it is trying to basically have backups for choke point technologies so that in the case of sanctions then it does it is not left not being able to do anything so, because that's a very real risk for China right now, whether or not it needs to have a complete supply chain. Well, it actually has a lot of the more lower value add components. It, it, it is just in the really more advanced pieces, as you pointed out, that it does not have a solution and it's actually pretty far behind. I think anywhere from 10, some people even think it's 20 years behind because there are so many pieces that go into 
these more sophisticated machines or processes. So I would say for China, semiconductors is clearly a big area of investment, but it's really because of the choke point aspect of it. Now, I'm not saying that the government doesn't care about semiconductors. If it weren't for a choke point, China has been trying to invest into semiconductors since the beginning of the century, but it made very little progress until the choke points happened because of the sanctions. So if anything, it's really the U.S. actions that are pushing <laughs> the Chinese industry forward. Mm. So there was a Bloomberg article on China has introduced the Little Giants program for 3,000 startups. To be honest, actually, in a recent acquired podcast meetup with all the rest of the community, I basically just educated them that China has taken the Germany playbook that's the decades before. The so-called Little Giants program is not original. It came from the German side, which is called the Hidden Champions program that jump-started the German manufacturing industry. In fact, it's more sophisticated today because when you think of a US tech worker, they get irrelevant after manufacturing move upstream. But the German manufacturing, in terms of precision engineering, the typical blue-collar worker is actually earning much better than usual. They even have a seat on their board of the companies as well. Yeah, in every German manufacturing company, one worker from the from the workers' point, they will have a seat on the board. So it's a very, very different structure. And this is how companies like Bosch came to the scene. I'm familiar with the German's Hidden Champions program because I, I read a lot of it through a couple of books, understanding how they came to be. I, I want to really dig a little bit deeper because I know Bloomberg is just going to cover the surface and not the not the in-depth side. Can you talk more about the Little Giants program and so what specific areas that the startups are actually focusing on? Sure. Well, I actually did research, especially for this podcast. So I knew about the Little Giants program, but I didn't really know too much about exactly what they're doing because it's not really that connected to the venture community. So the Little Giants program, as you said, is a government program. And the ultimate end goal, I should say, is really to identify high potential innovation-driven enterprises and turn them and help them basically become industry-leading in enterprises. So the industry-leading word that they use is guanjun, which basically means there's like sort of nine criteria, but it basically means that you are a world leader a winner in a specific, you know, one aspect, one product, one technology, one process, whatever. So the goal is this little giants thing is supposed to support that by the end of 2025, China will have identified 200 of these companies and then 600 high other high potential, these industry winners. And I don't have the criteria exactly in front of me, but they're actually quite stringent. Basically means, yeah, like I said, you have to be a world leader in, in something. Little Giants is part of the process of identifying companies that could become industry leaders. The Little Giants basically is like a government subsidy program. It gives you some reward money and then it you get some resources and getting help with financing, with government resources, such as hiring people, land use, all the government-related things, right? The sectors that they focus on is related to four points. The first one is what they call the four investment and innovation in the four industrial bases. And the four industrial bases is for a, basically a supply chain upgrade, choke point technologies, new information technologies, and then as well as just as any as well as just anything that integrates heavily with the real economy. Specifically, what I could tell is that the ten sectors identified by the Made in China 2025 paper that came out a while ago, or initiative, I shouldn't say paper, initiative that came out a while ago. Those are sort of the key sectors that the government is focused on. And some of them include, aside from the ones I already mentioned, there's also robots, right? There's also space and aerospace 
technologies, ocean and high-tech ships, high-tech rails and transportation, energy and new energy, automotive, electricity generation, equipment, agricultural equipment, new technologies, new medicines, biopharma, et cetera. So all, all these things that were part of the Made in China 2025 initiative are sort of target areas for the little giants. And the goals for the program is that identify these high potential companies in these spaces and then have them work with existing industry leaders to improve the entire value chain. So the government's going to identify you and then help you work with like the much, much larger companies in the space. And then they also want you to digitize and move to the cloud and then focus on improving your quality and branding. And then finally, they want you to accelerate the process of going public. So there are already about 10% of the last three batches of little giants that have already gone public in, in Chinese domestic stock exchanges. So they do want to accelerate that process and then also accelerate international collaboration. So far, there's been over 9,000 enterprises identified in the four batches. The fourth batch just concluded actually the earlier in August, 2022. And we can see the number of companies identified and participating in this program increasing. Yeah. So the, actually the, the first cohort was only 248 companies. <laughs> and then I guess MIT, which does this program, <laughs> like really heavily promoted the heck out of it. And then the next by the next time they did it, the following year, it was already up to 1,700. That was in 2019. And then this year it was over 4,000. So overall, there's been 9,000 companies identified. And when people talk about little giants, they're primarily talking about the national level, but there are also corresponding programs at the municipal and provincial level. In fact, you actually have to be identified as a provincial level company in order to qualify, I think, for the national level. And they don't call them little giants, although sometimes they do in promotional materials. But technically, the type of company they're looking for is what's called which basically means professional, specialized, with, with like specialized, but then also with special technology and a novel technology. So those are the things they're looking for. So you, if you are a company in China and you do have to be a privately owned, they're looking for a privately owned company, you can apply at the municipal level, get some get some reward money, basically, and maybe some resources, then you can also apply at the provincial level. And once you qualify, you can then, you will then be put forth in front of the national judging committee. And then if you get the national little giant stamp, basically, as I said before, you get government resources and you get some money. But also what's really great is that because it's such sort of a well-known program by now, then it will just really help you in getting new customers and also even in getting like bank lending. Small businesses in China notoriously have a hard time getting funding. And if you are a little giant, then you can go to the bank. This is the one of the benefits they pitch. Go to the bank and you can be like, hey, I'm a little giant. I've been certified by the national MIT in, in to, uh, to be an innovative enterprise. You should, you should give me, you should lend me money. I'm I'm quite credit worthy, et cetera. So there are there are criteria for obviously for being identified as one of these little giants, but you know, it's about how long you've been in business, what your revenue is like, how many patents you have, is your technology really novel, et cetera. That's pretty useful information. And I think um, the, the Little Giants probably will warrant a little one episode by itself, maybe in a couple of years' time where we really pro deep into it. And I'm actually glad that the, the Chinese manufacturing is following the German model because it's more sustainable and it's probably much better than the, what is happening to the US manufacturing system, which is what we have seen in the last couple of years. Yeah. I want to circle back. I think we saw what happened to Didi because of some compliance issue due to cybersecurity. Will we see less and less successful Chinese tech companies do this in the US? 
or instead choose to do it only in either Hong Kong Stock Exchange or the Shanghai Star Board instead? There are definitely still Chinese tech companies that do want to list in the U.S. And that's just because you have a very advanced capital markets here, deep-pocketed, long-term thinking investors, very sophisticated, et cetera, much more liquidity. But the reality is also that there is a large push by the government in China to build up the domestic capital market. So there are a couple of stock exchanges now. There are two at least that are new in the last, I guess, three years that are primarily focused on innovative tech. And actually, a lot of the companies that we see listed abroad in, as ADRs wouldn't even qualify for listing on these domestic exchanges. So it would really depend on the type of company that we're talking about. So if the trend continues and people are no longer working on consumer internet and they're primarily focused on deep tech, well, the domestic stock exchanges are actually set up to accept those companies. And I would say that From what I know right now, those companies are targeting a domestic listing. And by the way, they're doing that because, for example, the Shanghai Star Exchange, the average PE is 47. I just checked today, whereas NASDAQ is 23. So you get double the valuation, right? Why not? The problem is whether or not you're a company that can qualify because there are restrictions on what kinds of companies they let list. You do have to have a heavy technology component. So most apps are not going to make it. Mm. So if I take a more optimistic view, what are the most interesting Chinese tech startups that you're now monitoring in the ecosystem that people don't know about and which segments they're in? I only look at seed stage, maybe series A. So no one's going to know any of the companies that I'm looking at. <laughs> so, but what I can say is, what what I can say is there are a couple of sectors that are, I think, clearly doing better than uh, other sectors. And so, if you if so if you were not clear on which are the ones that VCs and entrepreneurs are focusing on, well, here they are. It's climate tech, healthcare, anything to do with choke point technology. So all the semiconductor related stuff. And then I would add on there, because this is a segment I look at pretty closely, is Chuhai. So Chinese entrepreneurs going abroad and globalizing. Within that segment, I primarily like to look at e-commerce because I think out of all the internet related technologies, China is still really strong in e-commerce especially relative to the U.S. And there's also gaming, but I think gaming is harder to find investments in. If I had to tell you guys about some startups in these respective spaces, well, I'll just give you some examples of fundraising announcements I read like literally today or actually this week related to these sectors, right? So for example, climate tech, I saw an AI energy management SaaS software for the grid, which I thought was really interesting, raised some good amount of money for what it's doing. In terms of other SaaS, I saw it I saw a company raise tens of millions of dollars for automated visual and optical inspection for PCBs, so printed circuit boards, which is obviously many, a large number of them are manufactured in China. So we see enterprise software, but not in the traditional sense that we hear about in the US, maybe in helping out white collar workers. This is helping out a factory to increase yield because manufacturing as it is a huge part of the Chinese economy and they don't plan to let go of it. They plan to follow Germany's lead. Another business in climate tech, this is an existing public business, cattle. I call it cattle. I actually don't know (laughs) what other people call it. C-A-T-L. It's the biggest battery company in the world and it's very advanced. It's new battery is going to have an energy density much higher than exist other competitors. And it's supposed to power up to 1000 kilometers, which is much, much, much longer than the battery I have on my Tesla. So yeah, I I would say these are really, or these are examples of companies that are taking China tech by storm. I do want to mention that for the businesses that I'm looking at, which are more cross-border in nature and focus on globalization, 
probably everyone has heard of Shein, the fast fashion giant. You can probably also guess that because it's been so successful, there are lots of Chinese companies and startups trying to mimic it and trying to fulfill other parts of that ecosystem. So that's something I'm looking at, which I think is really interesting. As for gaming, I like I said, I haven't really seen anything that I could personally invest in, but I do like games. I know you do too, Bernard. <laughs> and I was personally really impressed by the trailer I saw from some Chinese indie d- developers. But the one that I thought was most impressive was a company called Game Science, who is launching a game called Black Myth Wukong next year. It's a console game. But yeah, I suggest if you don't know anything about it to go check out the trailer on YouTube because it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think these things are also going to be eventually growing. So I'm going to circle back to the final question, which is also the last thing that we want to talk about, which comes back to the original question. Can we invest into tech startups in China? As foreign investors, well, like, and when you say, can we invest, you mean, like, can we logistically invest or is it a good idea to invest? (laughs) To be really nuanced, I think maybe we should think about can foreign investors invest in China? We know the locals too. I mean, yeah, yeah, but... Now okay. moving into a new era, can U.S. investors invest into China? Can Singaporean investors invest in China or many other nationalities? Let me give the Japanese, Korean, Australian, and European. <laughs> well, I would say it depends. Who are you? Are you a public market investor? Are you an angel investor? Are you investing as an individual or on behalf of a company? What's your strategy? What currency are you investing with? And nowadays, it's important to know what's your citizenship. As we can all see, this so-called strategic rivalry between the U.S. and China has resulted in certain types of deals becoming much more scrutinized than before. Now, I don't profess to know exactly what's going to happen. All I can say is that it's pretty obvious there's going to be more and more restrictions placed on investing into China by the U.S. government, how far it goes, uh, I don't know. Uh, What I can say is that right now, it seems to me that for public market investors, I don't think you have as much to worry about. I think that the relevant authorities have signaled that, you know, they really want Chinese companies to still be able to list in the U.S. markets. So I'm fairly optimistic that will happen. Is it a done deal? Um, No idea. Please don't hold me to this prediction if it doesn't work out. Uh, But I think there's a good chance. Now, for private investors, I think it really depends on the sector you're focused on. Are you, you know, investing into sensitive or restricted sectors? No, I don't think those deals are going to be able to be done anymore. But... If you're just looking at regular old software projects, then I think it's fine. Um, It's really not a problem. Uh, Not that I can tell anyway. Of course, the issue I think you should think about is supposing you do find a company you really like, does that company even want your foreign currency or do they want RMB more? Because as I said before, R&B fundraising in venture capital has gone up significantly. Still, though, I think in cases where the company wants to go global and perhaps also exit overseas, I've personally found that investing in USD is is just fine. Mm. I just want to end with a caveat to everyone who's listening to this podcast. This is not investment advice. Please do your own research <laughs> and be careful about what your risks really are. Yes. Rima, many thanks for coming on the show and thank you for doing this. And really, I learned quite a lot in terms of even thinking through the questions and having that conversation with you to also help me to clarify some of the thinking that I've been pondering about where Chinese tech is going. In closing, two quick questions. First one, any recommendations which have inspired you recently? Well, I've been reading lots of parenting books, so I'm probably not going to share that. What I've been doing during maternity leave is actually doing a lot of reading and research on semiconductors. So I'm glad you asked me some of those questions today because I know a lot more uh, this month than a couple months ago. And one of my favorite resources is this YouTube channel, which also is a Substack newsletter called Asianometry. They have a lot of 
I thought very informative content on semiconductors, especially leading edge stuff where it's just technical enough that you feel like you're getting a really good insight into the underlying innovation, but it's also not so technical that you get super lost. So highly recommend it. How can my audience find you? I am most active these days on Twitter. So R-U-I-M-A on Twitter and tweet at me, ask questions, you know, message me, I'll respond. One thing, Rima, just before I close this, Chinese tech analysts are getting less and less visible these days. And actually, I think there are some of the we some of the Chinese analysts that we know. I don't even see a lot of postings from them. I don't even trying to get them on the show is also becoming a challenge as well for me. But I think it's great to have you again, and I'm definitely once we realize why I need to talk to you again, and probably getting some of our old friends back on the show. You definitely can find us on any podcast platform. So I'm going to leave it as such. Just help me with a five star rating on Apple Podcast so that it's more discoverable. Rima, once again, many thanks for coming on the show. Congratulations on being a mom, and take care. Thank you. Run it, run it, run it.